Hello, everyone, and welcome to Big Steppy, a podcast about real robots, cool robots, and real cool robots. I'm your host, Scarlett, and my pronouns are she and her. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host and my lovely wife, Alice. Hey, I'm Alice. My pronouns are also she and her. Today's episode of Big Steppy is a little special. Um, well, we're still going to be completing our rewatch and, and covering Gun and Wing like we have been. Something's going to come up and we just really couldn't ignore it. No, we could not. So a few weeks before we sat down to record this episode, Gundam Info, the official Mobile Suit Gundam YouTube channel, uploaded the entirety of Mobile Suit Gundam F91 with English subtitles. This is a film that arguably represents one of the last gasps of the anime boom of the late 80s and early 90s, and how could I not watch it? I was not prepared. <laughs> Same. And so tonight we're here to talk about this, um, Alice, is it fair to call this a movie? Uh, I mean, it's not not a movie. That's fair. So let me explain what we mean. The easiest point of comparison for Mobile Suit Gundam F91 is the compilation films for the original TV anime. If you want to hear us talking about those, they're literally the first three episodes of this podcast. Uh, much like those films, F91 is less of a single, continuous story and more a series of episodes from a serial narrative that have been edited together for time. The big difference is that the compilation films were actually edited down from an entire TV anime's run. Mobile Suit Gundam F91 did not have to edit down an original anime because the anime it was supposed to be based on was never completed. Mobile Suit Gundam F91 is to this date the only animated thing that was completed from the plans to make an anime. That's not to say it was never going to be a broadcast anime. Alex, why don't you pick up from here? Okay, so how about this? F91 starts as Tomino and company getting the band back together. That's uh, Yoshiyuki Tomino for reference, the creator of Mobile Suit Gundam. Yes, my personal savior, the grumpy old man who controls my mind and feelings. <laughs> so, like, it's kind of the band back together. A lot of the early, like, a lot of the creative nucleus of the original Mobile Suit Gundam was back in the saddle again, all working together. Oh, God, I just blinked on his name. The, the fellow who was, yeah, who did the original Mobile Suit designs came back, as he had before, this time around, he wanted to be in charge, not in charge of, but like a part of the story again, which had been what he had, like a first time around, he had been a part of it. It didn't exactly work out that way, and I'll get to why, but um, they're definitely trying to do Mobile Suit Gundam again in a lot of ways. I'll get to some of the ways internally how it is, but F91's development did not go well. Um, they had a bunch of personnel problems. They had problems with the designs. They had pressure from the studio to make those designs different so they could sell models more effectively. It was a real nightmare, yeah. There's a lot of conflict over, over direction. It, it's just a lot of problems in production. Uh, eventually, they kind of got to the point where this is not going to happen after they had written the first 13 episodes which is part of why the first half of this movie hangs together really well. Because a lot of that first half of that movie is those th 13 episodes. Yep. So here, here's the problem. We did not make this clear a second ago, and I apologize for missing the lead. This is a two-hour movie that was supposed to be a 51-episode TV anime. 
and we're working with incomplete scripts. In a way, yeah. it's amazing that as much of the movie hangs together as it does. I have so far not been able to find those original scripts. I looked around a bit. I'm going to probably continue looking a little longer. If anybody, by the way, if anyone knows where I might be able to find those original scripts, I would love to read them or even just summaries of them because I am fascinated to find out what they had down at that point. Yeah. I also do want to make the point that this is kind of where Gundam takes its running jump into crazy town, doing all kinds of other stuff. Like just to put this in perspective in 91, the last time that they had a movie, the last two or three movies had been SD Gundam. <laughs> yes. The Shark's Counterattack in 1988, and it, like, it did okay, but it was considered to be very confused and did not have quite the same sort of critical reception. It did well money-wise, though. But there was definitely a sense that, like, they could not continue going with these same characters anymore. They had to do something else. This is where they try to do that. They kind of did with War in the Pocket, but War in the Pocket was its own thing. But this is where they start getting serious about it. And in a lot of ways, this sets up like Mobile Fighter G Gundam and Mobile Suit Gundam Wing. Because this is kind of where it starts to turn. Where they're like, we got to do something different. It is definitely a harbinger of things to come in some ways, though I'd also argue that this is sort of the last gasp of Gundam of the 80s and 70s as well, yeah. because it may be trying to go in a new direction, but fundamentally, we're still very much in continuity with the original Mobile Suit Gundam. This entire yeah. movie is in, is in the Universal Century timeline, so... There will be one more Universal Century timeline thing uh, released two years later that will be Victory Gundam. From what I've gathered... Victory Gundam is very is is a bit divisive. From what I've watched, I've not been impressed so far. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just about to mention, like, as of our recording, uh, Flash of Pathway is still is still coming. Yeah, and also Origin, I guess. I think that regardless, the next one when they tried doing going back to the Universal Century right after this uh, with Victory, Tomino despised it. He has said said in her interviews that he'd wish to de deny the existence of Victory Gundam impossible. Oof. And um, and the DVD, like, on the special edition DVD shit, he asked viewers to find out what went wrong with this show. I can't believe. All right. Wow, that is... Okay, before we get too deep in the weeds on that, though, uh, back to F91. So, yeah. F91 did all right, but... Unfortunately, the full ambition of what was originally planned for it never came to pass. We did get a six-volume manga as a follow-up to it called Mobile Suit Gundam Crossbone that's pretty well-beloved and had a lot of direct influence from Yochi Yuki Tomino. So if you really, if you watch this movie and you really, really like what was starting to happen with it and you want a continuation, that's what you're going to have to track down and pick up. But other than that, there's not a lot we can point you to. Unlike this movie, apparently the manga is really good the whole time. Yeah, that said, like, this movie is actually kind of worth checking out, maybe? Uh, I am going to say it as well. Uh, one thing before we start talking about this film, this has some of the best and worst animation I've ever seen in Gundam in the same movie. Like, if you look really closely, you can see the exact point in the film where 
the post-war economic miracle just becomes the lost generation. It, it just happens at right about the the hour mark of the movie. When this movie, when the animation goes bad, it goes real bad. Yeah, it it's very it's it's actually very funny. Uh, the first time I watched it, I actually didn't notice it as much. And rewatching it a second time with Alice to prepare for finishing this script, uh, it, it was just unescapable. And I was like, "How did I miss this the first time?" At one point, I howled out loud. Oh my god, it's Speed Racer. It's, it, was, it was. It was just Speed Racer for a minute. Now, if, of course, like that's later. The beginning, the first half of this anime is mostly beautifully animated, especially the initial attack, which we're about to get to, um, explaining what, what's going on there. It is gorgeous. God, it looks good. All right. I guess we should talk about the uh, story of the film, shouldn't we? So what actually happens yeah. in this movie? Alice, do you want to start or should I? Okay, so we can't have a universal century story without starting the traditional way of um, having a having some kind of war crimes happen. And also a lot of civilians have to die in the first five minutes, or it's not really universal century. It's true. That happens here. We get a we get some unidentified mobile suits entering into the space colony and in the middle of what appears to be some kind of beauty pageant where our soon to be hero uh, Arno Seabook Oh, yeah, thank you. Has bet 10 bucks on a classmate of his winning, which she's very pissed about. And this is interrupted by um, a a battle breaking out, uh, which goes very badly, very quickly. The the attacking force is highly skilled, incredibly efficient. Um, the, The Federation suits are utterly incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. They don't score like a single hit. They don't. I don't think they, they take down a single crossbone suit. Partially because of skill, partially as we, we very quickly realize is that technologically speaking, they're way behind. They're crossbone suits, and we'll get to what crossbone is in a bit, but the crossbone suits have like energy shields that are way beyond what the mass production uh, Federation suits can fight. And it is, all, it is just an absolute beatdown. But... If you imagine the beginning of the original Mobile Zoo Gundam, it's kind of that, but worse. Like, when I say worse, like, we see, you see a lot more civilians die up close and personal, and this time he doesn't, like, turn away from it, or there's, like, a big explosion. You, like, literally get to see them die. Like, we have one of the main kids, who looks like he's going to be with the main group, gets thrown from an exploding um, mobile tank, which we'll get to in a second. It's really great. And, like, is thrown into a building and crumples like a wet rag. It yep. is shocking. We see a woman who is carrying a newborn child running for the running for the battle, and a spit shell from a mobile suit's machine gun hits her in the back of the head and instantly kills her. And yeah. it's just like, wow, this is way more, like, up close and brutal than any Gundam I have, I have seen at this point. Yeah. As a time of recording, this is the most brutal I've seen Gundam be. It is not just violent. It is casually brutal in its violence. It is violence as just this most cynical yeah. way it can be shown. Like, yeah. it is very much all these people are dying because the Federation sucks so bad that they are doing more damage by losing than they are by fighting. <laughs> it is actually, like, a whole theme in this early bit that the Federation... The incompetence of the Federation response is in some ways more damaging for the civilians on the colony than the uh, crossbone forces, who are actually not, unlike the Zaku at the beginning of uh, Mobile Suit Gundam, 
they're not firing at civilian targets. They are actually trying, they're fighting inside a colony, so they're not necessarily, like, going out of their way to preserve people, but they're also not, you know, firing willy-nilly. They're a lot more disciplined, they're a lot more competent. There's a couple of points where, like, a Federation suit will, like, get up on a structure, and you'll see a crossbone suit deliberately either pull it off and melee kill it, or cockpit shoot it, to avoid, you know, hitting the uh, the reactor in the suit's engine and inadvertently turning it into a bomb. You know, you see that a lot in this battle, and it's actually really, really interesting. Whereas at the same time, you get the Federation at one point tries to use a bunch of kids as literal human meat shields. Like they are called literally, like in the in the in the subs, it literally says human shields. Yeah, that, that's not just a sub thing either. I. I don't know that much Japanese. I don't even have like a first year like competency with it, but from the little bit I could understand, I'm pretty sure that subtitle was accurate. On that note, so we follow a group of kids trying to escape the colony. These are our heroes. Most of them are not important to this film. Uh, you can literally write off the vast majority of them as very entertaining or very annoying background characters, depending on your speed. Uh, the important ones are Seabrook Arno, our main character. He's basically Amuro with blue hair, and that's all you need to know about him. And our deuteragonist, Cecily Fairchild, who we'll get to because her character arc is the plot of the movie. There's also like a bunch of like 10-year-old kids and younger, because it isn't a Yoshiyuki Tomino show until you've ended up with like five kids on a warship. During the course of our main characters attempting to escape from the colony. They're just trying to evacuate. They are cut off multiple times, and most of those times are by Federation forces fighting in their escape route. And at one point, they run to a museum that has an escape hatch in it. I love this guy! And they, <laughs> yup, we're getting there. And an old guy bursts out of the museum driving a hybrid mobile suit tank, and he tries to fight off the invaders, and it turns out this guy, General Roy, is a weapons nut who is the curator of the museum, probably? And he's he just outright says, if we don't, like, fight them off, our museum will lose its funding, <laughs> which is ridiculous and great. He's wearing an iron cross on his uniform, his tank crew is just, like, two random museum staff people. And the first, he, he fires two shells in the entire battle, one of which completely renders the left barrel of the tank unusable, and the second one misses. Also, he can't get the hatch of the tank to shut, so he spends the entirety of the fight leaning out of it, which goes very badly for him and also is the harbinger of a trend in this movie of people leaning out of their mobile suits, which happens way too often. Okay, I don't know why, but maybe this is just a Japanese thing. Maybe this is an anime in-joke that's been going on forever, because they ain't doing this. We're like, okay, if you ever watched Castle in the Sky, and those children are just so cavalier about running around on barely navigable surfaces up miles into the sky, and just, it gives me anxiety attack watching them. That's what this whole movie is like. Everyone has their door open, they're just lounging all over it. It's just, no, when you, your mobile suit is running, your door is closed. 
stop opening it and hanging your whole body out to talk to each other. It's maddening once you notice it. Yeah, multiple times that this happens, by the way, it happens during active firefights. So, yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, so that's a thing. So we learn about the invading army. Uh, the invading army are uh, Crossbone Vanguard. That is what they are called. They're, they've got a little bit of arms and everything. They are the military forces of Cosmo Babylonia, an authoritarian state with a rigid caste system that is kind of only just now becoming a actual state, starting with this colony. They're here to pick up Cecily. And it turns out Cecily Fairchild, our deuteragonist, is a descendant of their of the noble family who are the rulers of this authoritarian neo-monarchy space wizard Nazi place. Uh, her mother eloped with a commoner and abandoned her husband, who is currently still running that country. Uh, as the film progresses, we learn a little bit more about the culture of Crossman Vanguard, what their motivations are for attacking this colony. Right now, at the very beginning, we just get some establishing dialogue between one of their commanders and a soldier uh, that confirms that part of the reason they are deliberately avoiding civilian casualties is not just like a matter of mercy, it's also a practical concern because they want to use this the inhabitants of this colony as future military manpower. You know, leave the people in this area we're conquering alive, they will sur- they will grow the wheat and drive the machines of war kind of deal. Yeah, it's almost as if they learned something from um, Zeon failing to have enough dudes. Yup. <laughs> we get Seabook's dad. Uh, he shows up. He's briefly the best character in the movie. He does... We're introduced to Seabook's dad by him using jump jets on his spacesuit to jump up in front of the Federation pilot who's trying to essentially take Seabook and the kids hostage to use them as a human shield and flashing that guy in the face with his, like, welding forge, which is... One, kick-ass, and two, another reason why that guy should have just had his goddamn cockpit closed. This, this this actually happens multiple times. It does, it just keeps happening. Close your door! Ah. <laughs> yep. He joins up with the crew of the kids. They, they have, by this point, stolen the tank, now that the museum curator is dead, and they use that to make their way to one of the last evac points, where they learn that the military brass on the colony have evacuated. There are no escape ships left. Their only hope now is to get onto a little shuttle barge called a spaceboat and launch out and hope they don't die. So Cicely is a, ends up being separated from the others. I forget. How does she end up separated? Just, just Do we even see? We, we kind of don't. There's a little bit of a minor continuity jump there, but... In the previous scene, she mentions that her earrings are ringing and we get some implication that they're actually tracking devices. So while the group was going down to get ready for the uh, the space barge, uh, her adoptive dad tracked her down and kind of like dragged her away at some point. So it, it it hangs together, but like there is kind of a question. Wait, where did, how did you get separated from us again? <laughs> yeah, so like she but she gets separated regardless. And Seba goes down to help her in the tank just in time to watch her get into a fight with her adopted dad, who I cannot stress this enough, pulls a gun on her and shoots and randomly at her like feet or something. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell? And thinks that she will be swayed by the fact that 
he is her dad, supposedly, and also that she has to go back to her family because, hello, you're her adopted dad. You just shot at her. Why would this make sense? But anyway, Arno's about to intervene and he gets his ass handed to him when the Vanguard shows up at the same time, demolishes his tank after, of course, um, Sicily's adopted dad ends up shooting him through the very open door. And they don't have a tank anymore. Tank is gone. I'm very sad about it. It was the best mobile suit in the show. Rest in power, mobile tank. Rest in power, mobile tank. Um, I will I will say that, like, poor Seabook at least had an excuse for why his door is open, because it's established that the driver's hatch for the tank uh, is stuck, because it's a museum piece, and it's full yes. of ball. So, he, he had an excuse. No one else in this movie who's hanging out in their mobile suit has an excuse. Maybe more Federation pilots had died if they had known how to use their fucking doors. Anyway. Okay, so... Gotta get back. I forgot where I was. I got distracted. Um, so anyway, they don't have the mobile tank, but they still are able to kind of squeeze through the tiny cordon and um, get out of there. While Cecily is brought back to her family the rona royal family wow that is really really badly aged oh god yeah uh it's r-o-n-a-h i I literally just caught that reading the script like oh my god so and her her dad's name is carozo come on carozo rona (laughs) that's just cursed that's why this movie failed you guys it was cursed um it was a prophecy of dire events so they're getting out of here and they're so the group of the kids and Seabook's dad are getting out of there. His dad stays behind because after Manuel opened the door, he realizes there's a child inside who has been left alone and he just, he can't leave. There's too many people here that need his help. So he decides to stay. The kids go off in a seaboat. We don't know where they're headed, but we do see Sicily reunite with her family who she does not like. Her father, Corozo, wears a weird mask that, it, I'm just going to be real with you, it's just Darth Vader. He's just Darth Vader again. Yeah, he, he's literally got... <laughs> he's literally he's got a, the helmet. It looks like Darth Vader. He calls himself Iron Mask. We all think about Dumas. Uh, her grandfather, Mike, who is like, basically, what if what if uh, Kaiser Wilhelm I, but in an anime character? <laughs> and they want her to be like they want, kind of want to use her as sort of an Eva Perone character to an idol for the masses for their new nation, and she's not super thrilled about it. She says no originally, but plays the part of maybe at some point she might say yes because she's trying to survive here. She does seem somewhat moved by the idea that having someone like her to look up to might make things easier for people very briefly, but she's very obviously does not want to be here to the point of like telling one of the attendants that you know i'm not gonna kill myself you all can leave me alone for five minutes yeah so that that's what happens there uh we do get some other little details while she is with her family um notably the first thing she says that we hear her say while she is waiting with her new attendants to get dressed and go meet her grandfather and father is you all can leave now. You know I'm not going to commit suicide. Which, 
says a lot about what she's... This is not her, like, voluntarily going home to be with her family. She sees this for what it actually is, which is she's been taken prisoner. And she views this entire situation as more or less, you know, a coercive, abusive situation, which it is. And that's going to be important for later. So here's the first big continuity break with the film. The kids and Seabook and everyone else who are on the escape ship have made it to a new space colony, Frontier One, and have linked up with a training ship belonging to the Earth Federation, whose non-commissioned officers and officers are all off fighting, so the only people left are, like, rookies and trainees and the acting captain. Does that sound familiar? Because I'm starting to get some uh, some nostalgic vibes here. It's literally It's literally this first movie again. It's literally just Mobile Suit Gundam again, yes. The commanding officers of the she- of the ship are uh, Acting Captain Laylee, who is good and the best, and uh, also on board is Colonel Cosmic, who is a fat, awful piece of garbage who deserves nothing but death and spite. Now, when I say this is a continuity jump, I actually do want to point out one other thing. I don't, I'd love to like go back and check, because I only realized this today while we were sitting down to record. Remember that kid that Arno, that Seabook's dad went back to save. I'm pretty yeah, sure that it... kid is with the group from these shots onward. He's not with them in the earlier escape sequence. I did not notice that. That's true. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure that this kid, because like he's, he's okay, but how? I don't know. I'm pretty sure that it's just a continuity error. Uh, they, they. It is one of several points in the movie where a small to occasionally comically large length of time is just not shown to the audience and you're left to kind of come up with yourself what happened in the meantime i shouldn't say it's a continuity error because like there's still a logical flow you can understand how after a time jump you know one of this stuff happened but there's just some weird events where it's like why didn't you show this to us and this goes back to that uh, whole trying to make this into a movie, even though we didn't even finish writing it thing. Yeah. it's It just wasn't done yet. It really wasn't. So while, while everyone's on board the space arc, Seabook discovers the existence of the F-91. It is a mobile suit that they're trying to get up and running to fight the incursions of the Crossbone Vanguard onto Frontier 1. He discovers that his mother helped develop it, which he is unhappy about because his mom left his family behind to go work on biocomputers when he was just a kid. And he views the fact that she was secretly working for the mil- on military applications of that as a betrayal. It's not super clear why when he first says that, and later he'll have some dialogue with his dad establishing that, like, their whole family has some issues with the military. Um... So he instructs the engineers, who the engineer in charge of the F-91 to say nothing about their mom to his little sister Reese and says the two of them, there's no way the two of them know anything about what she was developing the F-91 for. This is the one thing he asks them. Just, just uh, remember that for later. It will be delicious irony. <laughs> okay, so we go back to Cecily. I keep wanting to call her Sicily. Like, when I was watching the movie at one point, I just started calling her Sicily on purpose. The coronavirus family have taken over a palatial estate on a colony they've just conquered. 
Um, I assume it's, I don't know, Philadelphia. <laughs> Cecily has a body moment with her grandfather, Kaiser Wilhelm the Old, in the aftermath of a Federation ship attempting to shoot through the exterior of the colony to kill them, which happens to blow up a refugee camp. Great going. Federation is bad again, not surprisingly. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we get some establishing shots of the Federation ship and dialogue that's like, no, this wasn't an accident. They intended to shoot there, even though they knew it could hit the refugee camp. I mean, yeah, but it's all worth it in the end, right? That's that's how they justify it. Yeah, it's all worth it in the end. It's all, it's fine. It's fine. Fine. Goddamn SJWs have to make everything complicated. <laughs> God. Back in my day, we just did war crimes. We liked it. <laughs> Anyhow, besides, you know, blowing up the, blowing them up. Kaiser Meitzer Wilhelm I gets to make his big speech uh, while he's trying to build an authoritarian society. Democracy leads us to insanity. It, it breaks in upon itself. People need to know their place in life and that life has meaning. The Federation is ruled by elites who have made their way back to an Earth that still needs time to heal and abandoned all people in space. And only an aristocratic society can do the things, that the stuff good. And also, I guess, noblesse oblige, and it's it's bullshit. The whole thing is bullshit. We're a little divided on how to read this scene. Can you go first, Cass? Yeah, so there's two ways to read this scene, which is the film sincerely has, sincerely or mockingly. And what I mean by that is when... Oh, talk, about the lighting. talk about the lighting first. Yeah, that's what I'm, I was getting there. Um, when Cecily and... Mites are start talking. It is pitch black outside, and they're kind of like standing outside in the aftermath of the Federation attack. And the artificial sun of the colony slowly starts coming up as Mites starts talking, and we get shots of woodland animals in the background. There's like fucking deer behind him at one point. It's great. And just by the end of the speech, everything has this like soft, rosy glow that looks like something out of a propaganda film. And there's really two ways to read that. And I tend to read it, or I read it at least on my first time watching the film, and a little less so, but still there the second time, as the writers of the film or the filmmakers have a lot of sympathy specifically for Meister. Not for the Crossbone Vanguard, not for Iron Mask, not for the whole genocidal project, but specifically for this old guy desperately trying to preserve Earth and preserve life in space. They see him as a genuine visionary, if not a good dude. That is I, how I tend to read it. Alice reads it differently. We're we're on the same in some ways. Like I think that Meitzer is supposed to, for at least some of this movie, be seen as like somewhat sympathetic. But and I kind of this is where I get to how I feel like it's a redux of the first movie, of the first movies of the first Mobile Suit Gundam. If Mobile Suit Gundam was made in 1979, when Tomino and company were a lot more optimistic about the world, F ninety one is made when they are deeply, deeply cynical about it. I look at this scene with its literally rosy, like overly saturated lighting, and say. This is supposed to be stupid. Not us learning about this character. I look at that and say to myself, yep, that is that is a sarcastic scene. That is a scene that I am supposed to look at and go, this dude is fucking nuts. You've lulled me into liking him by being an old guy 
so you can lay it on me that he is fucking insane. His whole thing is just not only is his whole thing delusional, the lighting of it makes it makes him talk about like the whole thing as if you know it's this Hallmark card. While remember at the same time, not that long ago, like literally a couple, a couple of minutes ago, and not that far away, like a bunch of innocent civilians died in a horrible war crime. Like literally right next to this, and all the sunshine is out, and the birds are singing. There are literally little baby deer in the background. It's like this is this is a joke. This is a farce. Somebody did this. Like it's it's almost ham fisted to me. Yeah, I I, I think there's like. I think there's multiple ways you could read leading into that, regardless. Yeah, there is. I know that, like, if there is one good argument for your reading over mine, it is Gundam really likes to pair charismatic authoritarian figures with wildlife for glamour shots. Because now that I think about it, like, we got a lot of weird shots of half-naked or naked trays getting dressed in Gundam Wing and then going outside to, like, have birds land on his goddamn hand like he's a Disney character. So, you know, and we're definitely not supposed to think Trey's is a necessarily like a sane person, but on the other hand, that analysis will wait for Gundam Wing. I, I feel like there's a lot go there's a lot going on here. There's definitely a lot of if this is, in fact, digging at Meitzer, it's a really, really complicated and high concept dig. More so than you might expect for a movie that has, like, a motley crew of diverse kids escaping from a colony on a space barge. So, anyway, uh, after that whole sequence, we, we, we cut back to Seabook, and, uh, oops, wouldn't you know it, um, Colonel Cosmic, noted asshole and warmonger, told his kid sister that their mom built the F-91. Oops. I don't think we've actually introduced Carl um, Cosmic yet, now that I think about it. I, I, I specified he's one of the two people from the... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, the duality of Noah Bright. Yeah. <laughs> well, the duality of that. Trust me, we will get to that. But, uh, oops. This is the one thing we didn't want to happen. Seabook's pissed. It turns out one good thing came from Reese, his kid sister getting traumatized by the grief of her mother leaving her as a child. as like, like, she was barely old enough to remember it when her mom left. She saw a bit in the repair manual for the F-91 that the male engineers thought was a code or something. You wanna, do you want to lay it on the audience what it, what it turns out to be? So, this huge code... It is uh, specifically eight columns make a bridge. It's Cat's Cradle. It's just Cat's Cradle. It's fucking Cat's Cradle. It's, I mean, yeah, Cat's Cradle is old, and like you know, it's it's more it's the thing you're more likely to see in some places than others. But it's Cat's Cradle, you guys. It is like, especially when this movie was made, like the '80s and the uh, late '80s, early '90s. That was just pop culturally a thing that was pretty common for you know kids, really kids of our of our demographic. It is. It is actually a. Versions of Cat's Cradle um, have been found in, all, like, all over the world. Yeah, like, it's one of the truly universal, like, little pastimes. It's just eight-column bridge. It's literally one of the most common things you do in Cat's Cradle. It's, it's, just, it's just a Cat's Cradle pattern, and all she was saying is, like, arrange the circuits for the biocomputer so they look like that. That was it. It's, like, such a subtle bit of writing. 
but I absolutely love it. There, there's a lot going on in there. There, there's a lot. Like I love the fact. I really do love the fact that. Oh, it turns out that um, being the secret to this thing all along was just ask a woman for help. <laughs> Literally, ask a twelve-year-old girl. Yeah, like twelve-year-old girl knows things that you don't. It's probably true of most twelve-year-old girls. Probably do know things that don't. The Zoomers had their pogs and and stuff. Otters. I don't. I don't know. It's, it's probably my favorite part of writing in here. I think it's one of yours too. Yeah, by far. It's, it's my favorite moment, moment of the movie. Actually, it's, it's hard to like. It doesn't sound that that cool when we describe it, but it's if you watch it, it is one of the best moments in this movie. It is one of many moments that makes me wish that we got the movie in the form it was originally intended as a TV anime because, like, yeah, it would have been still too. I, I might have cried. They they deliver on it really well. So, uh, back with the crossbow and Vanguard. Yeah, so our friend um, Sicilian <laughs> is learning how to really? file pilot things, like mobile suits. Um, she's being tutored by Lieutenant Definitely Not Char Zabine, um, who's taking a special interest in her. This does escape the notice of Anna Marie, a crossbow soldier we just, we just met, who has an interest in Zabine and finds herself deeply jealous within five minutes of meeting her. Yeah, it's literally her only character trait is really wants Dobbin's dick. I don't really like Anna Marie. Oh, she probably would have been good, except for, you know, like the whole thing where she doesn't have a, a she doesn't have a character because I don't know, characters are hard and we all have time. That that is a thing that's happening. Oh, uh, the F ninety one sticks now, uh in in the course of that two minute scene. Uh it is now officially codenamed the Gundam F ninety one because they look at it, and it looks like the original Gundam. And they're like, yeah, let's call it a Gundam. Also, uh, Birgit is here. Birgit is one of the only pilots that they find to be part of this little resistance movement based on and around the space art. He is regular Federation Army. He's a kind of a jerk, especially to a lot of the uh, normal resistance people, because he's he frankly thinks that they're all amateurs, and he's annoyed that like they're even here and that there are refugees in this war zone, which your mileage may vary on how fair you think that is. Uh, otherwise, he's a nice guy. He is the character who brings up the word new type. He casually mentions to Hero Cosmic bullies Seabook into piloting the F-91 instead of the qualified pilot who literally just arrived. And Bergen, like, if Seabook's a new type, he shouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah, I would point out that Burgess like, ah, hell no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. He's like, like, very rightly says, I don't know how to pilot that thing. Why would you want me to try? Because he's one of the only actually smart Federation people in this entire story. Yeah, it, it is pretty wild, though, that, like, of all of the people, we picked an engineering student over the guy who's actually had experience, you know, flying a machine that, like, actually maneuvers in the air at speed. And Burkett's actually a pretty good pilot, too, which we will see later. It, it is interesting to note that um, in this movie, as in the original, kind of, but, like, a lot more explicitly, Laylee, who is the, who represents kind of, like, the good stuff, she's the closest cognate to Noah Bright in this movie, is the not good the one who right. forces Seabook into piloting the Gundam. It's Cosmic, who is a dick, who you are only ever thought told to think of as a dick, and it's in its frame is incredibly abusive, because it is. Like, okay, so if you've been following along with this, you know that I have a problem with the bright slap. I have a problem, like, 
I definitely have a thing about the way that Bright is portrayed and what it says and all that kind of stuff. But this is my vindication in a little bit because I feel like Tomino agrees with me because you see how he, he had a chance to do it again and he split into two whole characters. Yeah. Where we get like we get the part of Bright that was the more noble sort of Bright the leader in one whole character, and then we get Bright the military man in another, and they are very different because they are very different in the original. Yeah. They're not even they're barely compatible. Yeah. Anyway. I, I do also want to point out one other thing, which is Lieutenant Cosmic's first action on screen is yelling at Laylee for no reason then jumping out the door of the space arc because he forgets that he's on a colony and there's artificial gravity under him and almost falls to his death and the kids have to rescue him. He is literally established from moment one as being the least competent, least good person to be given any kind of decision-making power. It is very funny, to be fair. It is it is super funny. Yeah. So, uh, oh. and Birgit go out and sortie with invading Crossbone Vanguard mobile suits uh they're led by uh dorel who seems like he's gonna be an important character because he's like cecily's brother like biologically and he leads a whole unit and there's like you know some build-up to him he's not important he will never be important he literally stops being important after this scene you can write him off completely so seabook it turns out seabook is just literally a new type that wasn't a joke he becomes an ace within the first two shots he fires. He is horrified because he's taken his first human lives. And the crossbone forces retreat. And huge continuity jump. Alice, do you want to talk about the continuity jump? Yeah, so we get the end of this battle. It's big. It's impressive. The animation's really good here, mostly. And then all of a sudden, Seabook's just wandering around Frontier 4. Just like, you know, it's really close. Totally fine. It's been rebuilt. Everything's good. Population's happy with their new masters. He tries, to, and he's just sneaking into the palatial estate to rescue Cecily by himself. We do not know how he gets here. We don't know how much time has passed. Seems like it's been at least a couple of months. At least a couple of months. We just know nothing until he's like rolling in the window, basically, to go surprise. I'm here now. Now you can go with me. And she's like, "Oh, but it's too late." And also, like, you know, I can't just run. They're going to catch us. And and then she sends him hacking just in time to avoid him getting shot um, and distracts her grandfather, who comes barging in, by saying that she's willing to be the figurehead so that he gets distracted with that long enough for Seabook to book it wherever he's going. Oh, and then the next day, it actually isn't super queer, but literally the next day, but, like, the sun's up. There's, we're still on Frontier 4. Yeah. Also, like, for the next half hour of movie, time is incredibly wonky. The middle portion of F91 is the point where they ran out of early episode and finished the script. And so they just jump in time in ridiculous ways to get to the ending. And uh, this is probably the portion of the movie that is the worst about that. So, Seabook's at a rally. Held by Cosmo Babylonia, he's still on Frontier 4. He sees a sniper attempt to kill Iron Mask. The sniper fails. We never get the identity of that sniper confirmed. It's possibly Seabook's dad, but then again, we don't see, like, we, we don't see anything confirming that. 
he's just the only person we know who's there who's hostile to Cosmo Babylonia, so maybe. The two of them reunite, they get into a thrilling escape sequence that ends with their car being damaged. Seabook's father is injured, a mobile suit is slowly closing in, and you want to tell him what happens? We just, all of a sudden, we're in the mech, we're in space. Yeah, we're just cut to Seabook and his dad, Just we cut from them being menaced by a Cosmo Babylonia mobile suit on the uh, the colony to, oh, the Gundam F-91 is just flying away and they're inside it. When did they get back on board the F ninety one? We don't know. We don't. How did the F ninety one get to the get to Frontier Four unseen? No one knows. The movie is just falling apart at this point. It's it's a huge disaster. Frankly, this is where it's about to get to the worst. Seabook's dad dies in the mech. Yep. Which is kind of sad, but I wish it hadn't been difficult to to focus because of, you know everything being stupid around it. Yeah. And he gets back. It turns out that he pulled an Amaro and went there without permission. And um, they're all trying to figure out what to do with him. Like, it's it's the exact same situation from the original show. But this time around, like, it's even more complicated by the fact that Seabook is not a soldier. A bunch of people here are not soldiers. Everyone knows this. And the people who are technically in Federation service are not really comfortable with press ganging him and and the other kids into the army they did it once in a desperation but they're not sure they really want to treat them as full soldiers and that would require throwing them in a brig and they're just not really sure to do with that and cosmic shows up again with a high-ranking federation commander and and just like talks about how they're his little resistance cell and all this kind of shit like you know he knows what he's doing and just like yeah, and, and here's see, and here's this kid. He's gonna be piling the Gundam. We named it a Gundam. The whole thing's moot. He doesn't go. He doesn't get punished at all because at the end of the day, Cosmic needs his toys. Yep. He just basically he just basically goes like, Nah, we we still need a meat sheet. We still need a meat vessel to like make the Gundam go fast. So uh, I, I'm not even gonna bother worrying about this bullshit. Whatever. So the next thing we get, sort of next, we get back on Cosmo Babylonia that they're they're gearing up to attack Frontier One because all of the Frontier side colonies are going to kind of make up Cosmo Babylonia, and they're going to you. This time it's going to be different. Instead of going in and fighting, supposedly they have a sort of super weapon they're testing there called Bug, which most people do not really know what it is. Zabine warns Cecily while they're discussing it. That um, he doesn't know what it is, and a lot, and that there are factions within the Cosmo Babylonia slash Crossbow Vanguard, and not all of them have each other's same sort of like motivations in mind. Um, Cecily decides to come with the invasion, which upsets Anna Marie. And she defects off screen, and yeah, we we literally we get a shot of her mobile suit arriving at Frontier Base One under escort, but we never actually see her like defecting. She just it's like a scene later, and she's defected. So, and she's going to go into battle with them. She's decided because apparently we're we're doing battle now. We're skipping ahead days at a time. Basically, everyone is bailing from Frontier One. Frontier One, like Frontier One, is definitely about to come under attack. No one knows what's going to happen, so they're bailing. And um, specifically, the Space Arc is going to get out. And while it does that, I'm sorry, I should say why it's getting out. It's getting out because they decide to essentially, they don't 
entirely I wouldn't say that they they desert, but they turn their ship into a they turn their acting captain Laylee turns her ship into a refugee ship, which we do not see her really clear with the brass. And her plan is to get the refugees out without necessarily fighting anything, while the mobile suits take part in the battle to provide them cover. Yeah. Of course, Anna Marie goes, so she can kick Sabine's ass, I guess, and then immediately fails and dies. Sabine kills her in an incredibly personal way in the middle of a ri- him, in the middle of him just losing his shit, and then tells Cecily coldly that, uh, you know, like, you know, emotions are bad, and this is what happens when you have emotions. You do bad things, and, well, anyone who has this kind of emotion definitely needs to be purged. And, like, Cecily's like, I need to get away from these fucking people. Yeah. So as soon as she gets the opportunity at some point during this skirmish, she immediately defects with Seabook. And Seabook takes her back to... The Space Art. Space Art. Which, by the way, his mom is also on now because she got there at some point. She was living on on um, one. Space One and somehow she got to the Space Art. We don't really... I mean, we, we, we see her, like, getting through a security door, but, like... We see you her know, through a security door and, like, going for a ride on her fucking moped toward the Space Art. But, like, we don't really... There's no explanation as to why she was here. Like, she's been here the whole movie, and she's only just now come to the space arc. Why? But don't you wish there was more build-up there? Because we sure do. That would have been good more build-up. It's Amaro Mom time, but, like, better this time, like, in every way. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about the bugs, because that's where we're going next. Yep. So space arcs beginning to evacuate. Iron Mask launches the bugs. What are the bugs? Okay, so we had differing opinions on this. I immediately said, those are cyberdisks from, like, you know, XCOM. The terrifying cyberdisks that it's very hard to shoot and will murder your entire squad. And Cass, you said immediately... Beyblades! They're motherfucking Beyblades. We're the giant Beyblades that murder you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Cybersonics just mowing you down, <laughs> thirsty for blood, hitting you, hitting you with your whole body, hoping that you turn into an explosion of rings. <laughs> they're just like they are just Beyblades. I'm gonna be real. They're they're fucking Beyblades. They are they are like really fast Beyblades that have lasers for. I don't know why they have lasers. They got like little stoplights, and they're just like flying through the air, like lasers. If they have lasers, I just I don't know. This this is a really dumb weapon. Like the the concept is actually terrifying. They're basically autonomous drones designed to seek out all the people in an area and kill them. But one, you could have just done a chemical attack, which you know probably would have been more efficient, honestly, on an artificial environment like a colony. Too. Well, yeah, in the colony, like, gas would have been good, but he's planning to use this on Earth. Yeah, he is. Two, like, they're implied to have some ability to self-replicate, but... It's it, unclear. It, it, it's really unclear, and we know that they need at least... They literally have to take a nuclear fusion reactor to power the piece of the ship that's launching them. And when it's taken out, it's kind of implied that the power source that they have is dead, so they're inert, so... They have a big, stonking, obvious weak point. And three, like, why why visually Beyblades? Why are they Beyblades? 
they could have visually been anything. Like, the, the characters, Cosmic even dies. Like, the last thing he shouts before he gets owned by one is, Goddamn Tops? Like, the characters know what they are. It's It was intentional. They knew they were designing these things to look like murder tops. Why? I don't even know. But they are defeated by... Seabug makes his swords go spinny fast, and <laughs> they all just come to him, because I guess they just want to? So they... I think there's some kind of implication that, like, they... I don't even they know. They see him as a big target. Yeah, I guess, like, there is actually no explanation for why mo most of them start following him. We should mention, Seabook, Birgit, and Cecily have all launched to fight the bugs, and Birgit dies here. He goes down fighting and just dies. R.I.P. I think it's kind of implicit that Seabook and Cecily are both new types, and I think we're supposed to believe that their new type intuition is what's letting them avoid the damage. So maybe they're just, like, kiting one bug and then dashing into groups of other ones and picking them up, and we're just seeing the, the outcome after they get, like, hundreds following From what I'm understanding, the idea here is that they got them to attack, and their main mode of the attack is drawing in close for, like, basically melee. And that doesn't work really well when you are a whirlwind of death. So they're literally too stupid to live. It's the mobile doll thing where there's a lot of ways to sort of like cheat the AI. AI. Yeah. 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 They, they, so they lure the bugs to an exit. They, they get out of the colony um, with only a few following them. Cecily grabs a destroyed mobile suit, lines it up and shoots through it. So she can use the reactor on board as an impromptu bomb and wreck the detached prow of this arm of Gar, which is the little ship that's launching these things, uh, which I think robs the bugs of their power source, and Seabook leads the remaining ones away from civilians. Iron Math decides he must finish things off himself. So he goes out in a totally not Lala's mobile armor, which he is connected to, totally unlike Lala, which this time is called the Rafflesia, and this time instead of... Um, the little funnels, we have tentacles. Yeah, you know, for the kids. <laughs> uh, actually, the tentacle thing is terrifying. Yeah. This thing has insane amounts of firepower. It destroys an entire squadron of, of carriers by itself. Yeah. And, like, the, re the Federation reinforcements from the moon are wiped out just by this thing. It is terrifying. Yup. And, um, so Seabook and Cecily realize they have to deal with this. This is Iron Mask. Iron Mask killed all, uh, most of the people in that colony with the bugs. They cannot let him keep going. He has to be stopped here because he's probably going to try to take that lake to Earth, and that just cannot be, that you know, just cannot happen. So they attack him. They're moving at like the speed of sound, trying to avoid his tentacle things. And here we discover that Iron Mask has the mask on for more than just shame and or whatever it's really because he is a cyber new type his whole everything is just full of electronics and he's just Darth Vader he's just Darth Vader again and he's he's connected into the ship and he's using it to control everything in the ship and they fight him this fight scene is good i just want to stress that it is good and eventually Cecily tries to get in close and underestimates the power of its defense systems 
and gets her thing ripped to shreds. And Iron Mask literally pulls her out of her mech by his bare hands and yeets her out into space. Yeah, it, it's kind of terrifying. The book goes in and he starts moving so fast he's creating after images that seem to have mass. He's literally fooling the radar, the targeting systems with them. He gets in close enough to get a kill shot, but doesn't actually make one because the what's the name? Iron Mask actually gets his own kill shot on himself. It is hard to tell initially, but he ends up blowing himself up. Yeah. See, because he's just to draw so many of the automatic defenses upward that the Rathlesia just cannibalizes itself. Which I just realized I forgot to write into the script. Thank you for remembering that. Uh, meanwhile, Zabin, remember him? He was a character in this movie. Zabin realizes Cecily has betrayed the crossbone. But before he can figure out what to do with that information, he receives reports of a new mobile suit with a friendly ID, which was the Rathlesia. And when he realizes that the bugs and Rafflesia were developed by Iron Mask without Meister's knowledge or approval. He just flies up and goes like, and the scientist, he like flies up to presumably the scientist who helped with that, who just tells him like, oh, I wasn't responsible for it. And he's like, cool. If you guys are going to do whatever you want, so am I. Headshots the guy with a pistol, kicks him out into space, goes out to deal with the Rafflesia himself, and gets there only after Seabook's already won. And he's just, like, watching Seabook, like, call desperately into space after Cecily and decides, you know what? He's pretty incapacitated. We've basically won this battle already. You know, the Federation forces are broken. There is absolutely no reason for me to kill him at this point, because, frankly, at this point, you know, he, he did me a favor by blowing up the Rafflesia. His lance, his lance mates, his little subordinates, actually ask him like if they should go after Seabook, and he specifically asks them the rhetorical question: Do you think we should be like the Bugs or the Rafflesia? And they fuck off. Yeah, like in the immediate aftermath, uh, Seabook starts looking for Cecily. He's panicked. You know, if we can't, if he can't find her, the whole thing was for nothing. And I want to stress this part of the again. This part is good. The animation's all good again. And he just can't find her. He is despairing. His mother, who is on the little space boat, which they've sent out to find him in the aftermath, shows him that he can use the biocomputer to find her, basically using his new, his new type sens sensitivity, which he does. He finds the flower, which I had been like, why does her mech have, a f have flowers taped to it? Turns out this is why. He finds one and very nearby her finds her drifting unconscious in the void. And he goes out to meet her. And this is the some of the coolest oppressive space atmosphere that I've seen in a gun movie yet. And they float together before he brings her back towards the others. And we fade out on them watching the victorious crossbones vanguard ships stream by in the distance. Yep. The end. So, that was a long oh, real, summary. Real quick. Previously on Notch, go ahead. And Panda will just magically edit these two halves together. Wow, that was a heck of a summary which we just did right now and not later as we edit this to be seamless. Wasn't it? Now let's talk yes, about was, the movie. It was very long, but we did it. Anyway, 
I think I think the first thing to talk about here, as far as our impressions of this movie, is the continuity breaks. Yeah, so we're going to start off with, I think, the negatives about the film in general, what we didn't like about it, and the continuity breaks have to head that list. There are moments in the film, especially around the midsection of the film, which you can clearly tell the least work was like actually completed for, that just jump ahead by days, weeks, or months in the timeline of the story. There's enough information there you can often pick up more or less what's happening to all the characters in the meantime, but you will be confused as hell. I think the two worst are really the ones that uh, happen, well, three worst, actually, because they're all around the same time. The cut from the unsuccessful uh, raid on Frontier 1, where Arno kills three people, to the C-book on Frontier 4 trying to get uh, Cecily off, to the next day where we get the weird cut from him getting menaced and cornered by a crossbone mech to his Gundam getting out of the uh, the building entirely, like, skipping the entire escape. Like, those are probably the three worst, but there are just so many others, so many small ones, that it's hard to recommend the film almost entirely because of that continuity uh, break. Like, if you do not have a lot of patience to take the film as it is, it will drive you mad. Yeah, it's... Okay, so, like, I was able to follow a little better than you were the first time around, I think, but... Yeah. Yeah, it got to the point where I was really disengaged with the story, because I was too busy laughing about Speed Racer cuts, and just... It loses a lot of gravitas to just inexplicable, like, okay, we're here now. It also kind of hurts the... Basically every character arc. Yeah, there are a couple of characters who get out a little bit better, but... Some definitely do not. It also doesn't hurt that, like, or it doesn't help that, like, rather that in addition to the continuity breaks, the midpoint of the movie is probably where the most notable drop-offs in animation quality happen. You'll get, we get, I think the last really, truly beautiful shot before the ending of the film is the Crossbone Vanguard sorting out from their home base and we get, like, this beautiful shot of them all launching from the catapult deck and falling into formation. And then everything from there is just so much worse in quality. And because the continuity breaks are happening at around the same time, there's not much to distract you from that. Yeah, it's it's really a shame, too. Yeah. Ironically, I feel like continuity breaks bothered me more on my first watch through uh, than they did you and yours. But I knew it was coming. Yeah, but in my like, I was completely unprepared for it because I had no. I went in blind. I had no knowledge about the film. But when I watched it the second time with you, and I knew it was coming, I actually noticed the animation this quality drop off much more <laughs> than I had the first time I'd watched it because the first time I was too busy absorbing just how ridiculous those continuity breaks were to really pay attention to the fact that the movie just looks measurably worse at a lot of points. Yeah. There are a lot of characters who feel like they just would have had longer arcs in the planned series, but just sort of take up space at various points. Uh, the kids, Dwight Camry, who we barely mentioned in our summary. Uh, the one guy who with frizzy hair who looks like he's like Woody Guthrie's. He, like, that dude looks like 
he's about to drop a synth album any moment now. Like, he looks like he knows Wendy Carlos personally. He ate Weird Al, 70s Weird Al specifically. That guy, yeah. Like, we, we I can't even remember his name is the sad part. And even, like, some characters we really liked, like Captain Laley, I feel like, gets done a disservice because the movie just doesn't spend nearly enough time on on the space arc, you know, compared to what uh, assumedly would have happened. It's also a little difficult to tell, like, what the command situation is. Like, is Cosmic her commanding officer? Is he just some bum? Because it's not immediately clear in some ways. Like, what what actually is the situation of the rebellion on Frontier 1? All of that is just hard to follow. It's unfortunate. It's, like... There feels like there's supposed to be so much there, and it just doesn't exist, and it it sucks. It's it is going to frustrate you if you watch this movie. I mean, personally, I think I think it's worth watching, but it is going to frustrate you. So, fair warning. You were not sure about the mobile suit designs. I had a very distinct take on the Federation mobile suit designs in this movie, specifically the Federation ones. And that is, wow, I like this mobile suit design a lot better in Pat Labor. For those of you who don't know, Pat Labor is a long-running shonen manga from the 80s. Similarly, a re- kind of real robot title. It's about, like, police in the whatever century, and they have a giant robot, the titular Pat Labor. Uh, it was also made into a very, very famous movie that we will also someday be covering, I'm sure with a just absolutely stunning cast of behind-the-scenes talent working on the animation and direction, including Mamoru Oshii, who you all probably know better as the director of the original Ghost in the Shell. So, yeah. It, it, it was a bit weird looking at the Federation mechs and just going like, that, that looks like the mech from Pat, Pat Labor. And I, I don't really know how I feel about that. Like, it's not necessarily a bad thing because the Pat Labor design is good, I think. And it definitely does feel like we've jumped forward from the era, from the mobile suits that the Federation uses in Mobile Suit Gundam all the way through Shars Counterattack. But it, it is a little bit uncomfortable because every other Gundam mobile suit design looks distinctly like something from Gundam. They always kind of have their own aesthetic. You know, you look at a Gundam design, and even if it's from one of the spin-offs that have kind of a weirder take, it's always recognizably something that's Gundam. And this is the one of the first mech designs I've seen in a Gundam anything that feels like it could have come from another property. So that that's a little bit weird. I did do some digging, and I might not be off about that Pat Labor comparison either, if my dates are correct, uh, based on the little bit of digging I did on Wikipedia, Pat Labor is a movie, premieres 1988, F91 broke in 1991. So there was time in the production of this film, potentially, for that to have been something either that uh, Katsuhiro was deliberately drawing on, or maybe something that he was being pressured into uh, drawing, because you actually did a little bit more digging than me uh, while we were in the course of writing this episode, and you found some stuff specifically about the mech designs in it, right? Yeah, so um, the original manga run of Pat Labor and the original um, was 1988 to 94. The OVA was, early days, was 88 to 89. Um, yeah, yeah, so 
the original designs were a lot more elegant and the studio really just wanted more lines. I mean, they literally asked him to put more lines in there. Um, oh no. Yeah. Not a great idea. I kind of, I'm torn too. Cause on one hand I agree. They, they don't look Gundam and that is kind of disappointing. On the other hand, what I do like about them is that they feel a lot more real machine. Something about how they are drawn and how they move. In, in the scenes where they're actually animated well, uh, the heavy yeah, guns in, do... In the scenes where they're animated well. Yeah, the heavy guns do have like a lot of weight to them, but I feel like some of that's being carried less by the design and more by... When the animation in this movie is good, it is on point. Yeah, then that's why I'm sort of torn, because I can't tell how much is one and how much is the other. Big negative for me on those designs, like, they managed to do a bunch of things right and a bunch of things not right for me, for my tastes. Hear that, for my tastes. Like, I like how the weapons work in this a lot better than basically any other Gundam besides the original. Uh, do you count the Iron weapons... Blood Orphans in that yet? Well, okay, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> besides Iron Blood Orphans. Because, like, I'm, I'm, well, even Iron Blood Orphans, because I'm specifically talking about ranged weapons, and Iron Blood Orphans is really big on, there are a lot of melee going on. There's a lot of melee going on there. It's more the focus. We need to watch more IBO, but yeah, fair enough. Though IBO does this as well, where like they're using a lot more conventional weapons. When they do use beam weapons, they're not stupid. You don't get nearly the same level of I shoot one laser and it kills a million dudes who are not even touched by it kind of thing. Because I hate that, but we don't really get that here. We get a lot of like shot. We get a lot of weapons that makes sense, that feel like they work, that they make sense. Even the the Rafflesia and its ridiculous, like, cheat ability powers are honestly, like, you get how they work. It is a, it is a barrage. It is, like, they've stuck a whole bunch of, like, artillery lasers, great lasers, onto a mobile armor and kicked it into space. It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I actually have much more positive feelings about the Crossbone Vanguard uh, suits yeah. in general than I do the theirs Federation. are better theirs are theirs are really cool I really yeah. like them but we should we should save them to talk until we're talking positives for, for yeah. me it's like I, you know I I hear what you're saying about all those designs and I can't help but think you know we could have accomplished basically all of that with the GMs and I think honestly I think future Gundam movies bear that out because from the little bit I've seen of Gundam uh, Unicorn. I feel like the way they showed some of the GM series mechs in that absolutely proved that you could have done that level of physicality and, you know, real motion with leaner, sort of more classically Gundam designs. I do like the GM, the original GM, the GM. Yeah. Do you want to know my favorite Federation mech design is in this movie? What? The mobile, the tank from the very beginning. Yeah, I love that thing. It, it looks like Star Fox tank. I, I was actually kind of mad that they didn't save the tank and remodel that into the basis of the new Gundam. I think that would have been a sick movie. Yeah, it would have been good. It would have been a much cooler movie. I'm sorry. The mobile tank left us far too soon. Rest in power. Rest so, in power. on that note, uh, since we're talking about things we like, we may as well talk the good stuff in this movie, starting with the good animation, which... You know, we, we've ragged on the bits that don't work, and that's almost not fair because in the moments where this movie's animation is good, it is some of the best you will see anywhere. The initial fight in Frontier 4 is so beautiful 
that I couldn't, I just didn't have anything to say for the first 10 minutes of the movie. I'm just shocked. Like every inch of this is golden. Every single bit of it is just mesmerizingly good. Holy crap. Yeah. Like it is kind of impossible not to love that particular portion of the movie. I think that's absolutely, you know, the high point of the film, which means it does peak early, but like in the bits of the movie that look like that, you know, you, you just kind of go, yeah, like just really all, all we could say at this point is um, track this film down and watch the animation. If nothing else, watch clips from it so that you can see just how good the animators were at bringing this story to life. It, it covers a multitude of sins. Yeah. Actually, you want to know what my favorite sequence uh, surrounding that battle is? When the hole gets blown in Colony 4, uh, or uh, Frontier 4, as the space boat escapes, and you just see, like, all of these figures being violently ripped into the vacuum of space. It is terrifying when a hole in the colony is opened in the original Mobile Suit Gundam, but it wasn't terrifying enough, and I feel like this was their chance to, like, do that over again, and wow, did did this movie deliver. I am, I, I was shook. It was so good. Terrifying, by the way. Just absolutely, this will be in my nightmares. I'm not sure what my favorite part of the initial fight for Frontier 4 would be. It, there's just so many things. Yeah, uh, the the first heavy gun just crashing into the top of the building and ruining the beauty contest is also a great moment because a lot is happening there. Like, the mobile suit itself, the way it falls... The fact that, like, the building realistically buckles underneath it. Uh, we see the interior of the building as it's being crushed. That's so cool. Or, like, I love all the takedowns of Federation Max. I love seeing... Well, they finally do manage to get a kill. Watching them having to just put this thing down. I love watching... I love seeing the, um... The fucking head get yeeted, get kicked like a soccer ball at one point. God, it's just, it's so good. I, we're just going to talk about this forever. Yeah. I might, I legitimately might go back and just watch the first 20 minutes of this movie at some point. It would not be the worst use of your time, yeah. Other good things. So, talking about arcs that suffered because of the continuity breaks in the movie, uh, there is one character arc that even truncated is really, really good, and I think that's Cecily's. This is very much a thing that I think I resonated with the first time through a little more than you did. But yeah, I really, especially on the second watch through that I did with you, I super appreciated the subtlety of how that was written because Cecily spends the entire movie caught in in an abusive, coercive situation. And her story is ultimately about escaping that. And I like how the film does contain a lot of lines that help reinforce that dynamic. Like, it is notable to me in a lot of ways that one of the things that she brings up more than once is that she's only going through with some of the things she does because she can't get up the nerve to commit suicide. And while that is not necessarily healthy words from anyone, you know, it says a lot about what Cecily views the power dynamics in her situation as. When you kind of, like, factor in that Cecily sees this as, like, a thing where she's going to either eventually be forced into this role or be forced to end her life, a lot of her decisions in the film make a lot more sense. Yeah, I was... I didn't like... I felt like a lot of her cool moments got stolen or 
sped through and her biggest moment is crying with Seabook in some ways. And yeah, that was frustrating to me, but like, I, I'm, I'm kind of coming around. I've kind of come around to your, the way you see that. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that Cecily is more the main character of this movie than Seabook is. And I feel like if her arc had been given room to breathe by letting the film exist as it had originally been intended, which was as a much longer serial narrative, we really would have gotten a lot more of a satisfying feeling to her arc. But I think it's impressive to me that it survives as well as it does in the final cut of this incredibly truncated version of the story. Speaking of writing that holds up in the truncated version of the story, the writing on a lot of the individual beats is great. Probably, I think the stand-up moment for both of us was uh, Dr. Arno's code in the repair video just being a cat's cradle thing. Such a good moment. It's so good. Yeah, it it is a little bit... This is cheating a little bit, talking about the positives, because I feel like both of us are like, man, if only the film had been allowed to be a TV show, then, like, you know, all of these moments would have had a chance to shine. But I'm going to count it as a positive for the film anyway, because... It's almost worth watching the film just to see all of the ideas that Yoshiyuki Tomino and the rest of the writing team had for this story. And when you see all of them, it's like, oh yeah, no wonder you guys decided to try and flip this into a film rather than scrap the project. Like, if I had written a line or a scene this good, I would do whatever it took to get it out there in front of people, no matter what. I mean, God, like... I mentioned this earlier a little bit, but like I really want to, I really want to talk about how story wise, it's F ninety one is what if Mobile Suit Gundam, but done by a much much more cynical writing staff from a much more cynical and world weary kind of perspective. Like Gundam seventy nine is very much a story that is fundamentally fairly optimistic. It, it even it, like it doesn't seem that way at first, but like. The perspective of Mobile Suit Gundam, the original Mobile Suit Gundam, has this kind of like, you know, regular people can survive and thrive and, and overcome their enemies, but also like it's normal people who affect the change that, you know, can end this suffering. And you there's a little bit of that in F91, but there really isn't. I mean, they don't just fall into line as well, it's our duty, I guess. It's, they, they like, they basically desert. Yeah. The, the film ends with the heroes leaving the battle alive and the Crossbone Vanguard effectively winning everything they wanted, which, you know, I mean, like, Iron Mask is dead. Like, the genocide of Earth isn't going to happen. That's good. But in terms of, like, you know, did the heroes actually win anything? The only thing they really won is they live. And, yeah, and, and like, in the end, that's kind of, F91 says that is victory, whereas Gundam, Mobile Suit Gundam saw the end of the war itself, ending the war itself as being the victory point. F91 just doesn't think you'll live that long if that's if you if you keep trying to do that. Yeah, yeah, I completely feel you on that one. And kind of like jumping off from there, just one point I wanted to re- touch on real quick while we're talking about Crossbone Vanguard and their influence on this movie uh if there is one thing that counterbalances my awkward feelings about the heavy gun mechs that the federation uses in this movie it's the design of all of crossbone vanguard's military forces and 
just general aesthetic. It's not just the neck designs. Like, the neck designs are really cool, and I like that the uh, mobile suits have elements of the Zaku's silhouette for a lot of them, but instead of having, like, the traditional single-eye camera that the Xeon mobile suits all have, they look like gas masks. I think that's really chilling, and I like that it almost kind of implies that, like, the world's moved forward in time, and if there is one thing the complicated mech designs do, is it does make it feel like this is distinctly in the future from the original series. I also like that, uh, you know, it goes beyond just, like, the mechs. Like, I also like that Cosmo Babylonia is deliberately Duchy of Xeon-esque, but their aesthetic diverges in a lot of subtle ways. Uh, if you go through the movie and pay attention to the background art in areas that, like, Cosmo Babylonia have, has conquered, there's always, they find ways to sneak in lots of elements of, like, classic Babylonian art in the background. Uh, I like that they have a big eagle for their symbol, just like Xeon, but instead of, like, being the German, you know, we are obviously space Nazis eagle, it's meant to be evocative of the, like, uh, spread wings of, like, Maat or Isis. You know, it, it's it's a much more, like, Mesopotamian cradle of civilization kind of vibe. You know, you compared it to, when we were talking about this, you compared it to the Duchy of Zeon are Nazis, Cosmo Babylonia are neo-Nazis. This is a little bit, I'm not 100% married to this, but to explain what I mean there, Whereas Zeon is kind of its an original thing, Cosmo Babylonia strikes me as being a revivalist organization in a lot of ways. It is a, they have a lot of the hallmarks of a fascist movement between the two of them, but like, are kind of something else. So a lot of like, revivalist fascist organizations in the modern day will take symbols that are adjacent to fascist movements of the past and just kind of like, tweak them a, tweak them a little bit. And they won't. They are less likely to use the old symbol directly. Everyone knows. For instance, like you know, neo Nazis in America are less likely to use the swastika flag directly. They're more likely to use, say, a German battle flag, or the Black Sun, or the Thorun, or some other thing that is really obvious what they are, but is not quite so on the nose. It's something that they can claim is theirs. Yeah, like it's their thing. But also, you know, they're the the old ones thing as well, and establishes a connection between themselves and something way older than what they're actually connected to. Like the Black Sun is an old occult thing, and the uh, rune, rune runes go back to you know the old Norse and and Cosmo Babylonia's entire shit is a smorgasbord of like old. Mesopotamian stuff and obviously Eurocentric aesthetics. Yeah, I, I do think it, like the way you you described it to me last, the other night was actually really elegant when you said the hallmark of a neo-Nazi symbol is it's something that the actual Nazis didn't use but would have liked. Yeah, and that's kind of what Cosmopolitan is to me. Uh, the other example I used like, like a couple nights ago was um, the First Order. Yeah. From uh, Star Wars, yeah, from Star Wars, it t they they had them take the Empire remix it. That that was a little more complicated. I have to talk about that one more. But having said that, I don't like the Quantum of Babylonia as much as I liked Zeon for a lot of reasons. 
Yeah, I, I'm gonna be real. The new zombie family sucks. Oh no, no, no. like the in terms of like the actual characters, aesthetic of the Crossbone Vanguard, but like Mitzer, I met Degan Zabi. I like Degan Zabi. You're no Degan Zabi. Yeah, like it, the weird thing to me. Okay, so like I mean, if I have to read this in terms of like you know, this is the more a more cynical type of Gundam. There is a lot less of an effort to humanize like the Cosmo Babylonia higher-ups, and a lot more of a knowledge of, yeah, these people are bastards. Like, the one who is the least a bastard is delusional. Yeah. So, like, those are your choices here. Whereas, like, the original Mobile Suit Gundam is willing to give a lot of humanity, space to be human, to several of the zombies. I mean, from literally the first one we meet who gets punked to the last one we meet, they all have moments of genuine like okay this is a real person and they don't there's just not that much here that does that except moments that either kind of make them look worse or like the one moment that we're sort of divided about but i think we both agree does not really it doesn't like but not long after that when we really start to get more info on cosmic babylonia that moment just does not do a great job of making him feel human it makes him feel fucking delusional and out of touch I mean, you say that I I actually felt like that moment was a little bit too complimentary to Meitzer, and I could very easily see someone watching this film and come out of it thinking this is a movie about Meitzer and his ideals being kind of like the closest thing the movie has to a good guy, and really it's just the bad Iron Mask who was the problem. You know, I I could very easily see someone making that argument. I don't know that they would be correct. No, I I don't think they're correct, because I think that this is the common problem of the, I'm going to out-clever myself with how, like, this with the way that I make this story, and whoops, the people you were supposed to think were bad, obviously, you end up not obviously thinking that. You made them do cool, or you made, or you made them, gave them plausible deniability on accident, when you were trying to show how disunited and stupid they were. Yeah, it's kind of the problem with like movies like American History X, where it's explicitly textually a movie about how being part of a violent white supremacist hate group is awful and will, you know, destroy you and your family. But, you know, because of the way the film is shot, you get a lot of like glamour shots of neo-Nazis and real neo-Nazis kind of gravitated to you know, some of those those depictions, because it's like, man, they, they made us look sexy. Were you trying to, like, you know, scare people out of joining us? Yeah, it, it's just, unfortunately, not all cleverness works. And I just, I kind of feel like there's a degree of that happening here, where, yeah. yeah, I think you'd absolutely could read this movie that way. I don't think it's the intended way to read it. And I think there are a lot of things in the movie to show that, while it is makes sense that someone would think would that that someone like Meitzer would exist, he is incredibly delusional. Yeah, like because the system he describes and the system he wants to build is kind of just the Federation again, but worse. Like he doesn't think so. He doesn't think so. But like it really just is. Like it's it's a it's it is a stratified society with elites on top who are in charge of everything. And his only real uh, difference is, well, they'll serve the people. It's like, well, yeah, but the Federation said they do that too, dude. Yeah. Like, 
the only thing that's different is that you think all these nobles are going to, these nobility you raise are going to care as much as you do. And frankly, I would point out, you gave this really long speech while people were dying, like less than a mile from you. And you don't seem to be that concerned about it. Yeah. Except it's sort of an abstract. It's like, so I don't think the movie is meant to be written that way, but it definitely can. And I, I have to acknowledge it as the, it is not a, a high point for this movie. No, it's not. On that note, though, if we're if we're gonna talk about like sort of already dipped into the feeling of like comparison to the original Mobile Suit Gundam, I wrote down uh, in our script document here some notes on that kind of this is Mobile Suit Gundam again. Take you wanted to run through and what if what if Zion was competent? What if Zion was competent? And I, I have some things that I wrote down here that we want to hit on. Do we want to, like, go through these real fast? Um, yeah, sure. All right. So uh, first thing I have written down, Noah Bright is kind of split into two characters in F-91 in the sense of, like, the commanding officer of the space arc, who's probably the most obvious direct cognate to Noah Bright in that she is also a young officer in a little bit over her head and trying to kind of keep the whole keep the wheels on the train as it were is uh acting captain Laley. but the role of the person who forces seabook into the gundam and generally does a lot of the shittier things bright does in the original series has been handed over to unrepentant asshole colonel cosmic uh, yeah i actually kind of like this because it, it removes the ambiguity of them trying to show the good part of Noah Bright while also marrying him to the legacy of the Bright Slap and sort of the kind of abusive military militaristic behavior. So they just split them. Like, it's like, no, we're not going to have this thing. We want you to like, this is the character who is, who would do this, who would press gang a, a like minor and do piloting a mech. This is what they look like. Because to show you someone like Noah Bright, I feel like the Noah Bright was okay, but doing him again would have been kind of a bad idea because it would have really sort of endorsed Noah Bright and his actions in the beginning of the, of Mobile Suit Gundam, and I don't think Tomino really wanted to do that. Like it seems as if he was re- they were really going for the writing team here was really going for a no. Just to be clear, just so we're all on the same page, this isn't actually a good thing. Yeah, and I, I do think it also makes a big difference to, like, the story of this... While there's definitely, like, F-91 is Mobile Suit hitting a lot of the same beats, on the micro level, there were a lot of big differences in how the story of Mobile Suit Gundam and F-91 play out. And I think one of those big differences is Mobile Suit Gundam is in part about Amaro sort of like maturing and also about him, you know, coming to terms with a war he can't help but fight. And Bright is writing the character of Bright the way they did is kind of important in that story because while he is shitty and abusive to Amaro at multiple points, he's also a character who is kind of going through the same shit Amaro's going through. Like everyone on White Base is kind of comrades with each other, even if Bright is sort of put in the position of having to do some of the things he does in in Mobile Suit Gundam, or at least feels like he's being put in that position. But in this series, like, 
there's a very different relationship between Seabook and the Space Ark. You know, the Space Ark, he doesn't get on there to get away from anything. He kind of goes there because there's nowhere else that he can take all of these kids who, you know, need somewhere to stay while they're running away from war. And they just happen to end up on this ship and get aggressively shanghaied into a rebellion they kind of want no part of. They just want to, you know, gather food and survive. I mean, the people the people in the Space Ark are not super thrilled about it either. Yeah. Not just that they're not super thrilled about refugees here. There's more that they're not super thrilled about fighting the, the, in the war at all. Like, the people in the Space Ark are, they eventually will sort of more or less desert with, unofficially desert, but they're definitely not thrilled about this whole situation and they don't necessarily want to press gain these kids and they don't even, they just, they are, they're helpless. I'm, I'm reminded of that, of that bit that, um, Blue Goldman said once, not Goldman, whatever his name is about, um, the end of, uh, what is it called? The book with, uh, the kids on the Island, the book with the kids on the Island. Um, Lord of the Flies. Yeah. At the end of Lord of the Flies, um, he kind of said that, yeah, the, they've come for the, the, the cruiser has come for the children, but who will save the cruiser? Like, yeah, this realization that they're not much better off. Whereas like white base was all about the sort of persevering and trying their best and fighting through like space arc. the space arc feels like a sort of like the last hope brigade of all the dregs and non-combat personnel. And they, they don't rise above that beyond like how much they have to because they don't really want to because they shouldn't have to. It's kind of not their job to like they're they've been all but abandoned. Um, we're told that their communication with their superiors is almost non-existent. Like they've just been abandoned. So like just like white bases and their reaction is a lot more realistic. They're just like, well, fuck this. Yeah. We got a bunch of refugees on here, and they're just doing jack shit about it. Like, which goes into the point we were thinking about talking about next, like, how the Federation is so much worse now than they were. Like, they're just really bad. Like, you're supposed to kind of not be thrilled with them in general. In the first. But, yikes, they're just so bad all the time. They never get any better. It's not just one dude. It's it's, uh, basically everyone who works for the, who's a main federation kind of person except for kind of birgit it's it's really birgit Laylee, and the the space art crew and that's it those are the only positive members of anyone in the federation like when bardo shows up the high-ranking official who cosmic answers to i'm pretty sure that's the same guy who tried to use seabook as a meat shield is it i'm not sure but i would love you to you know Take a look and prove me wrong. That said, this movie does have one problem, which is occasionally some of the um, minor character designs are a little samey. Like, you know, th- there's a lot of old dudes with receding hairlines and mustaches in this movie, and they all look a little bit like each other. Like, Lieutenant Cosmic looks like a pudgier version of Seabook's uh, dad, who looks like a trimmer version of a random Federation captain. You take that back. You take that back, because Arno's dad looks like Rob Rao. Okay, that's that's fair. He does have a Rob Rao stash. But <laughs> Rob Rao with a receding hairline. That, that, that explains why Seabook's dad is the best character in the movie, actually. 
but you know what I mean. Like there, there's a lot of like that particular template for a design used in this film. And I wouldn't be surprised if like, you know, old military dude with like naval cap and those weird like Captain and Tennille sideburns thing is also a character template that gets reused. But yeah, if they are the same character, I I think that speaks for itself in terms of like how much worse the Federation are in this movie compared to the original Mobile Suit Gundam. Because the original Mobile Suit Gundam, a lot of the harm the Federation does is in negligence. They neglect to give the support to white base that it needs. They neglect to provide places for it to offload all of these refugees it's carrying around. They neglect to, you know, relieve people like Amaro from the military command they've kind of been press-ganged into and instead just decide, well, you already fought, you're a soldier now. You know, it's mostly in what they neglect to do rather than the direct harm they cause. In this movie, the Federation directly causes harm multiple times. They're actively firing beams that could and do destroy substantial portions of refugee camps. They're inciting attacks from the Crossbone Vanguard. They're failing to keep the fighting contained and directly trying to, like, grab civilians, including children, to use as meat shields. It's just a more active, monstrous form of the same negligent cruelty that we already knew the Federation was capable of. And I think that's even more chilling in some ways, because that means the culture of the Federation got worse in the intervening years after Mobile Suit Gundam. Yeah, and I didn't learn anything. I mean, that's kind of a one. If there is, there's another lesson here. It's probably that uh, they didn't learn nothing. <laughs> they didn't learn a goddamn thing. Dear Princess Celestia, the Earth Federation yeah. learned nothing. <laughs> God, touched over my life forever. I think we've kind of said everything that we had to say here. Uh, more or less, there's there's one other thing which was uh, that I wanted to bring up really, really fast. So we said that Zabin is kind of Char in this movie, but we also kind of agreed that he's Char aesthetically, but this movie doesn't really have an equivalent character of Char Aznable or Lala. And if we can look at this movie through the lens of this is the... Oh, I did, I did want to talk about that real quickly, actually. Yeah, you know, if we look at the movie through the lens of, like, Mobile Suit Gundam, that's a really important omission in the story. So I, I have two very specific things here. One is that there is not a Char because Mobile Suit Gundam was a story with a lot more of a feel for... Mobile Suit Gundam was a less cynical story and had room for someone like Char. A character like Char. Dashing Gallant slash Bastardly Char. A villain you kind of love. My other take is that there is a Char. His name is Iron Mask, and he is the Char of Char's counterattack, who has been shaped by war and trauma and the ideology that he cannot escape and has become something radically different than what he could have been or what he should have been. The Char of Char the Char's counterattack, the Char that rebirths Zeon, is a very different dude than the Char who killed the zombies, and also a different dude from the Char and Zeta. And it's a worse Char. And I think that Iron Mask is a slightly more realistic, but also a lot more depressing 
depiction of this is what happens to people like Char. They either they a lot of them just become like this, just the worst because they're able to justify it in their heads because they are they have protagonist syndrome. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure which one of the things I like better. Well, one day I'll know. Um, what do you feel about Lala being not in the film? Like, there's there's really not an equivalent role for Lala unless you count Anna Marie, and I really don't. What are you talking about? Iron Mask is Lala, <laughs> duh. She can't be everything. He's got her iron. He's got her. He's, I mean, the rough Weasley basically is just a Lala's armor, uh, mobile armor, like again. It is kind of just Tricorn Hat 2.0, but honestly, I, I don't know. I I feel like. New types are a big deal in this movie. I mean, the ending hinges on Seabook learning to new type, and it's like a big part of the tension of that. But it, it is interesting to me that there's not really a character like Lala who, I guess if there was really an equivalent character, it's Cecily. Uh, in which case, you could argue that Lala is still here and her arc is expanded to a much larger one, in which case I'm all for that, honestly. I'm not sure that Cecily counts there, because part of the whole, part of Lala's point of Lala being in Mobile Suit Gundam was kind of this, Lala is proof positive that the potential of the new type, you know, mankind's evolution among the stars, to become something different and to like, breach the gap between people, that whole thing Lala's kind of the linchpin of it. Cecily's not. Yeah. And there's really no one who's like that. And I think it's very intentional despite there being new types because this is a, a version, this is a look at new type, the new type idea saying, yeah, this is just, it's totally possible. It's just not going to happen. Like, the, like, there's no real guarantee that even if we change in space or in the future, that even with our ability to communicate with each other, being fundamentally stronger, there's really nothing to prove that we'll ever that we'll ever stop murdering each other. That we might just be better at it. Yeah, and that was I mean that was in the original too, but like it's a lot stronger here. The most new typey thing we see them do is Cecily and Arno using their new typiness to like murder better, and like I mean okay, not murder better, but like to be better at the whole killing thing and. I mean, I, I would say that, like, the, the most new typey thing that happens is them connecting in space after... That's fair. That's fair. I mean, the second most... The, mo until that point, almost all of their new typeness has been really focused in combat-related situations where they're able to communicate without speaking to each other multiple times during the fight with Iron Mask and before that point. Yeah. But... I'll give you that. That is one moment, but it's also at the literally the end, and it's a there's a lot going on at the same time there. Yeah, so it, it's just not as much of a thing. I would say, I guess, I would say that's not a thing at all. It's just not as much of a thing. It's not something that the movie really privileges in the same way that Mobile Suit Gundam really, really went out of its way to sort of push. Yeah. On that note, I think we that's pretty much everything we had. So uh, I think it's time we start wrapping up. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a hell of a long episode. Uh, to all of our listeners, thank you for sticking with us. This episode was something I felt like we had to do, even though we both knew going in it was going to be a lot longer than our target runtime, partially because of the source material. Because for better or for worse, 
91 is an important movie to the old guard of the Gundam fandom in a way few other things are. Uh, to me, it sort of represents the height of where the future of the Universal Century could go. And it, it, it's evidence of just how many more ideas Yoshiyuki Tomino wanted to explore in that original timeline. And it's kind of sad that the version we have is very incomplete and imperfect. But on the other hand, few works of art in history ever get to be an unalloyed version of what the creator's original vision for them was. And what we have is definitely something worth appreciating. I'm not really sure if I can recommend this movie as a film, because the midpoint really is just incomprehensibly bad, and it drags, and it's confusing. But if you're already a Gundam fan, and you haven't seen it, I think you you owe it to yourself to seek it out, if only for the animation, if only for, you know, the the feelings you're going to have, especially if you were a big fan of the original. Yeah, highly recommend watching it. We we have been a little we've been hard on this on this movie, but we would o- we only cared as much as we do to be hard on it because when it's good, it is really good and it's worth the experience. I agree. So as we wrap up, we have some special thank yous to make. As always, uh, we'd like to thank our editor Panda, who can be found at at mpandanata on twitter.com. Uh, she's not only instrumental to our show sounding as good as it does, she's also the co-host of Alice's other podcast, Imagine Me and Utena. Yeah, which you should listen to. It's fun. We, uh, were a podcast that was originally just about Utena. We were rewatching it, and now we've gone kind of pan Ikuhara. We are working on, at time of recording, we're still kind of working through, um, Yurikuma, and it, it's, it's going to be really good. We've had a lot of fun. We have guests on all the time. Definitely check us out. If you like giant robots, do you also like art house lesbians? You should listen to both of our podcasts. <laughs> I mean, we as we have established privately and publicly, um, magical girl shows are Becca, and Becca is a magical girl show. Um, it's just they're the same thing. Same hat. Same hat. Oh my god, we're gonna have to cover Magical Girl, the Oracle Nanoha for like April Fool's Day or something. Please don't quote me on that. Oh no, we were gonna quote the the the, the Magical Girl show that apps that shows this the best. You know, the one that everyone loves the most. Strike witches. No, not even for not even if, if we get we, a Patreon and we make it a stretch goal. If we get a thousand listens on on on, on any episode. I will do an episode by myself and I'll force myself to watch enough Strike Witches to have an opinion about oh, no, it. I, I, will, I will do that with you in solidarity. I will make you do that alone. On that note... <laughs> I cannot promise I will be sober for any of it. I, don't, I think that is the intended way to watch Strike Witches. Uh, we'd also like we'd to like thank to think... Uh, yeah. Uh, um, they, made our, they made the art that we use for um, for Logo. They are really cool, and we are blown, we are still blown away by it weeks later. Agreed. Uh, Alice, where can people find Chip if they want to uh, get a high-quality, very, very awesome commission? So I'm actually on SepiCast, and I thought that you had written it in, so I didn't bring it up to look at their thing again. Oh, no. So, Panda, you will have to edit this out. You may judge me if you wish. Just added it to the script, but I forgot to look it up. Everything is terrible. You're terrible. I'm terrible. The world is terrible. That is definitely a thing that is that is true. Uh, I'll log out.
Now I have to get in my own. Let's see if I can get in my own. Wouldn't it be great if we just kept this entire sequence? Yeah, that would that'd be great. A thing that we should definitely not do ever. Just keep it. Let's no, just talk no. About it. We, we give our listeners the full experience. We're unlike every other podcast because we give you the full experience of recording. We give you us sitting down, awkward talking over each other, bits where we accidentally interrupt each other and we just awkwardly fumble because no one is quite sure where we are in the script anymore. And of course, several minutes of us looking for the social media handle of our lovely and talented artist. I, for one, welcome our Babylonian overlords in space. Okay, so you can find Chip at um, at A-L-V-E-O-L-A-T-E-S. Alvoletes, I think it is. That's A-L-V-E-O-L-A-T-E-S. Chip is great, and thank you again. Absolutely. Of course, you can also find us at SteppyCast. We, we reply to everything. You can find me specifically on Twitter at LiarWolf, which is L-I-R-E-W-U-L-F. Um, I also answer things. SteppyCast will probably just spam char at you a lot, but but I will. But both of those will answer any questions or any engagement that you would like. Yep, and uh, if you have ideas for future topics or feedback on an episode, yeah, just drop that on SteppyCast, and we'll we'll give it a go. Thank you all for listening again and for joining us uh, for this two-hour monstrosity we've just recorded. We hope you'll join us again for our next exciting episode, which will definitely be much shorter and is probably, at time of recording, still going to be the continuation of our rewatch and review of Mobile Suit Gundam Wing. And on that note, this is Big Steppy, signing off. Ha, ha, ha,